If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 19 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the guys will get one right to your seat so they can, you can follow along with us. Chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 19 can really be divided into three groups, and that's how we're going to take it. We've already looked at the, the first part, the worship of the Lord, verses 1 through 6. Uh, number two, the wedding of the Lamb, verses 6 through 10, and then the war in the Lamb, verses 11 through 21. So it kind of all is divided that way. This morning we're, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, with the title, The Wedding of the Lamb. John writes, verse 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, this time that we could gather together to be in your word. Holy Spirit, knowing that you are here to teach us and instruct us of all things, Lord, to convict us, encourage us, to give us hope. And Lord, we thank you for that. I do pray, we do pray, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you today, they're not born again today, they don't know you as their Lord and as their Savior, Father, that they would not leave this place without making that commitment and receiving the forgiveness of their sin. Lord, bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Years ago, America's Funniest Home Videos had this video I thought was great. I, I thought of it. I thought it would be great for the study. So I found it, downloaded it. The quality is not that good. But it sure is funny. Let's take a look. You know, when we finally get to be into the presence of the Lord, I picture that same scene. I mean, we're going to be, oh yes, oh yes, this this is going to be great glory. In fact, our future, it it says it here in verse 6, And as I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, 
as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And just exciting, exciting, exciting. Now, if you've been with us through our studies in Revelation, then you've sat through chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way up to chapter 18, and you've seen it's been all about the tribulation. It's been all about trouble. We've studied the seven seals. We've studied the seven trumpets followed by the seven bowl judgments. We've seen plagues and pestilences and suffering and scorching and heartaches and sorrows and earthquakes and quite possibly all-out nuclear war and death. Finally, we come to chapter 19, and it is the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's all wrapped up in just this one little short chapter. I think if it were me writing this, I would have reversed it. I would have described the tribulation in one little short chapter and the second coming of Jesus in 13 chapters. Yet the Lord knows better than obviously you or I, because although the book of Revelation does indeed deal with the mark of the beast, the, the, the one world monetary system, the false religious system, everything else that relates to our current events going on right now, this was also written to seven actual churches at that time. Seven real churches who were at that time being fed to the lions, dipped in hot wax, crucified upside down. In fact, by a conservative estimate, there were six million Christians that would die before the persecution ended. So in light of all of this, John assures his congregation that even though life is a catastrophe, and it can be very, very brutal, painful, and cruel. However bad it may get, there is coming a day when all of this will be done away with. Where God will remove sin completely from existence, and man can live in perfect fellowship and harmony with God forever, and we will all sit down and rest from all of our struggles and all of our difficulties. And one of the first things we're going to get to do as Christians is what Christians love to do best. Eat. Absolutely. We'll have this wonderful meal prepared for us, what is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. This is the great event in which the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and the church are wedded together. It, it, it consummates redemption. This wedding in heaven is a stark contrast to what we studied last week in chapter 18 with the destruction of Babylon, uh, which results in, in verse 23 there, it says, The voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. In other words, earth's joys have ended, but heavens have just begun. Now, I do enjoy watching wedding videos, wedding fails on, on YouTube. I do the cake tips over or the groomsman passes out and you see them. And, uh, you know, I've seen before, you know, guys getting dizzy and, okay, uh, unlock your knees. You're going to go down. You're going to go down. And, and uh, or this man so overwhelmed saying glory. Reminds me of a story about a pastor's wife who asked her husband how the wedding ceremony went. He said, well, it went fine, dear, until I asked the bride if she would obey. And she said, do I look stupid to you? And what the bridegroom was kind of sort of in the stupor and he kind of mumbled, I do. And that's when things really started to happen. If you have to explain the joke, then it's not funny. I'm sorry. Let's get to the study. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, the announcement of the wedding. 
Number two, the array for the wedding. And number three, the asking to the wedding. First, the announcement of the wedding. Look at verses 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, weddings have announcements, right? You get it in the mail. So-and-so is getting married. Well, what a surprise. And, and you're kind of excited. Weddings are normally, are normally joyous occasions. Weddings in the Bible are joyous occasions. It's synonymous with joy. And that's the way this announcement begins in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice. Why? For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Marriage supper of the Lamb is something that Jesus liked to speak of quite often. He, in fact, referred to it in many of his parables. Remember the story of the, of the wedding that was happening and a man was turned away because he did not have the proper wedding garment. We'll look at that more in a moment. Then there's, of course, the famous story uh, that our Lord told in Matthew 25 about the ten virgins or bridesmaids. Five were wise, five were foolish. The announcement was given. The, the bridegroom is coming. The foolish ones did not have the oil in their lamps. They weren't ready. So Christ referred to this many times. And it's clear in this imagery that, that Christ is the bridegroom and that the church is the bride. Paul brings this up in 2 Corinthians 11:2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed to you one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11:2. Now for us men, you know, we don't like to be referred to as the bride, but understand, again, he's talking about the church, those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those that have been born again, so deal with it. Uh, <laughs> we as believers make up the church, not a building uh, a people in, in love with and surrendered to our Lord and Savior. Now, Paul uses this language again in Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to read these 10 verses, verses 22 through 32, because they really set up the picture of what we're talking about here. Listen to these verses, these 10 verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Catch this. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now it sounds like Paul is talking about husbands and wives, and of course he was, but the higher lesson here is that the church is called the bride of Christ. And the mystery that is revealed here is this special supernatural secret of marriage that God created marriage to be a witness, a testimony of Jesus. A picture of how Christ is and how the church should be together. 
You see, when a man behaves like Christ towards his wife, loving her unconditionally, cherishing her, providing for her, even sacrificing his life for her, he is accurately portraying Jesus Christ to the world and what Jesus has done for his bride, the church. And when a woman submits to her husband's authority as unto the Lord, then she is portraying the proper way that the church should be submitting to Jesus Christ. Together, that couple presents a portrait to the world of a testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in the same way, the bride, the church, one day will be married to Jesus. And that is where John here in Revelation 19 is blown away by what he sees. A wedding feast like no other. A banquet. I mean, God the Father is throwing a wedding feast for his son and his bride, the church, and he's going all out for it. It's going to be incredible. People have asked me, uh, you know, uh, will we eat in heaven? Well, you can't have a marriage supper without food. Maybe for dessert, some angel food cake. I, I don't know, but let's get to the second point. <laughs> The array for the wedding. Now understand, on your wedding day, you are going to want to look your best. I mean, if you're a guy, you're not married yet, you know, that old t-shirt with the holes in it and, and the Levi's and the old shoes with paint on them. You know, you, you don't want to dress up. Get, rent yourself a tux, get a tux, uh, at least a suit or borrow one. Ladies, you're going to want that gown that is just, just beautiful. And you're not going to wear it over to the church. You're not going to put it on and drive through Taco Bell and order yourself a burrito with lots of sauce. Why? You don't want to spill anything on that that beautiful bridal gown. I mean, this is the big moment when those doors open up and the bride steps forward, probably hanging on to her dad. The bridal march begins. Everyone turns their attention to the bride. Everyone stands up. Yet in this ceremony... Things are a little bit different. The bride is not the center of attention. The bridegroom is. But with that said, we are being presented to him. So we want to be wearing our Sunday best, if you will. We don't want any spot. We don't want any wrinkle. Look again at verse 8. It says, And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. First of all, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. That word granted, I think, speaks, it speaks of God's grace. No matter how many good deeds the bride did for her apparel, she is there clothed in fine linen only by the grace of God. It is still grace that dresses her. It's clean, it's bright, and it's in direct contrast to the whore of Babylon who wore the purple and the scarlet we looked at last time. False church may appear glorious, but... It's like a, you know, a prostitute all dressed up, way too much makeup on. Now this is important because those who are invited to the feast have to have the proper wedding clothes. So if you have the proper wedding garments on, you're allowed in. You're there. You made it to heaven. Why is that so important? Because there will be those who have been invited to the feast but don't have the proper wedding clothes. They're going to be thrown out. You're going to be asked to leave the feast. It's clear in Scripture. In fact, I mentioned this earlier, Matthew 22. uh, Clearly speaks of this. Matthew 22, Jesus told this parable of this great king that that threw this this feast for many of his friends and the people that he knew, and he sent out his servants to invite them to come, uh, you know, his family to come. But instead of accepting the invitation, they made light of the invitation, and they actually killed the king's servants that were sent out. 
Well, that didn't make the king very happy, so he's angry. So he goes out and he destroys all those that have rejected the invitation. Then he sent his servants out to the highways, to the byways, and gathered together all whom they found, good or bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Here's what Jesus was teaching there. Christ came to the Jewish people. The Jewish people rejected him. They, they rejected really the suffering Messiah mentality. They wanted the king right then and there to set up the kingdom on earth where the king would rule over the reign of Rome. But it didn't go down like that. So what did they do? Well, the Jewish leaders took the prophets, took the preachers, and they, they wiped them out, killed them. So Jesus says, well, since you weren't listening... I'm going to go into the Gentile world. I'm going to the non-Jews, and it won't be based on them following a set of laws, but simply by believing in me. And when they do that, I will give them the proper wedding garments. See, the garments are the righteousness of Christ. When we are born again, when we turn from our sin, because of what Jesus Christ has done upon that cross, we are then clothed in His righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Isaiah 61 at 10 tells us, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I love that. The righteous garments will be there for all to wear, for you to wear rather, all the righteousness that's in Christ Jesus are yours if you are in Christ Jesus. If you are truly born again. If not, you don't have the proper garments. So in this parable of, of this, this feast, this, this hall is full, but, but then look what Jesus says in Matthew twenty two eleven through 14. He says, But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So you have this guy coming to this, this wedding banquet that says, Hey, here's why I should be in. Or at least he's thinking, here's why I should be in. I, I mean, I, I've been a member of such and such church. I've done this, and I've done that, because I'm a, I'm a good deed doer. No, it doesn't get you into heaven. Well, I should be here because I gave to charity. Nope, you can't get in because of that. See, all those things the Bible describes as filthy garments, the righteous deeds of man when it comes to salvation. Now, now, where is that? Well, chapter 64, verse 6 of Isaiah says this, but we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as the leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So the guy standing there in his own righteous deeds and Christ encounters him and says, Fred, what are you doing here? He says, well, I thought I could make it here on my own. Actually, we read he's, he's speechless. He's not going to say anything. And the reason he's speechless is because there will be no good excuse when you stand before Christ on that day face to face. You can't go, well, you know, my church told me this is the way in. Sorry, they lied. And Jesus will say there, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because Jesus has said in his word, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way to enter in than through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, the reason that he's being thrown outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth is because that's the only two places left to go. 
I mean, it's not like God can say, yeah, there's a hell, but I'm just going to set you aside for another millennium. That doesn't work that way. No, earth is no longer going to be here. This is the end. It's not like you can, you know, embrace that old bumper sticker theology. When it comes to heaven and hell, maybe remember these stickers. It says, heaven doesn't want me and hell's afraid I'll take over. I mean, how many people do you think in their right mind read that bumper sticker and said, man, I feel the same way, dude? No, nobody did. No, you won't take over because there's already somebody in charge and he's about to be thrown into the lake of fire. But you see, heaven really does want you and Jesus really does want you and loves you. So there's only two options, heaven or hell. And it's going to be really sad when it all goes down like what we read here in Matthew 22:13. Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But that's why John says once again, coming back to verse 9 of Revelation 19, he's told to, to write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, how happy are those that have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ for those are the ones that are called to this great marriage supper. These are the ones that have had their sins forgiven. Now you may say, well, I understand that, Pastor. But why then does it say in verse 8, the fine linen will be clothed in is the righteous acts of the saints. Listen, don't get confused with the righteous acts of the saints with the righteousness of God, which is imputed to each believing sinner at the time of conversion. Understand, godly living is how the bride prepares for the wedding. It's like this. On the day we meet Jesus face to face, we will be clothed in his righteousness. But when we sit down at that banqueting table, we'll be clothed in our own righteous acts. You know what that means? Some of you at this great wedding feast are going to be wearing bright white sweatpants and a hoodie, basically. And others are going to be wearing this, this beautiful formal wear. Have you ever gone to an event where you thought the dress was casual and it was formal or the other way around? I've done it. Two, two experience. Joey, my son, was playing football at Glendale High School as a freshman, and they had a freshman football banquet. So I come in a T-shirt and some Levi's and some tennis shoes, and I get in there, and he's there in suits and ties and sport coats, and I'm like, man, I'm underdressed. So then he transfers to Kickapoo, and they have the football banquet the next year, so I put on the suit, sports jacket, and I mean, they're in T-shirts and Levi's. I'm thinking, I can't win. <laughs> Listen, the marriage supper of the lamb dress, uh, dress should be formal. I'm just telling you this because I don't want you to be embarrassed, okay? <laughs> but if you come in sweats and a hoodie, you can't blame God because this is all that you gave him to work with. So if you have any sort of fashion sense, you won't let that happen. Begin now to serve uh, give God with your time and your effort and your money and your passion. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths don't corrupt, where moths can't get to your garments. Listen, all that you do for the Lord with love in your heart is weaving for you a beautiful wedding garment for that day. You'll be arrayed, arrayed beautifully. This brings us to our final point. We had, number one, the announcement of the wedding. Number two, the array for the wedding. Number three, the asking to the wedding. Look at verses 8, one more time, and verse 9. And to her is granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now at this point, I can picture John here in Revelation 19. He's not even writing any longer. 
He's just kind of in awe of the whole thing. And in verse 9, he has to be reminded to write. Then he said to me, write. Because I can picture him just like, wow, eyes big as golf balls, you know, just looking around and they snap out of it. Hey, 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 write, write this down. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you can imagine why. This is heaven. This is magnificent. He's, he's kind of just looking all around. Maybe it's like this poem called The Best Poem in the World. It goes like this. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all, nor the lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Bob, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus. What's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How did all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, he said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. When it comes to being asked to the wedding, I think it would be best understood if we take the time uh, to point out an interesting parallel between the traditional Jewish marriage arrangement and the church being the bride of Christ. We'll do this and we'll enter into communion. You see, the, the, the traditional Jewish marriage arrangement was broken up into three stages. You had the engagement stage, the betrothal stage, and the actual wedding. Someone also said marriage today is broken up into three stages as well. Three rings, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. Uh, but I didn't say it. I said someone else said that. But for the Jewish wedding, it was divided into those three stages. The engagement stage, the betrothal stage, and the wedding. First was the engagement stage. Marriages, they were made by arrangement. When your child was young and, and you as a parent, you'd say, okay, I want to bring my daughter to meet your son. They felt that it was too important of a decision to be left to immature kids. So the parents decided for them. Well, then came the betrothal stage. It took place when the girl was somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16 years old. And at the time of the betrothal, sometime before the bride-to-be and the groom's first meeting, the fathers would come together and negotiate a type of dowry. This was the, the, the price that was to be paid by the father of the groom for the bride-to-be. Now, sometimes it would result in a lot of haggling, you know, bargaining back and forth. The, the price was determined by three things. First was the father's wealth. Second is the, the bride's worth. And number three, the groom's work. So the father's wealth. If he was rich, he doesn't want to insult the bride family and appear to be cheapskate, so he'd, he'd want to be very generous. The bride's worth. What did you view her worth to be? A couple of chickens, perhaps a horse, and the bargaining would continue. The groom's work. In case where the, the groom's family was poor or deceased, the groom could work to pay the price. If you remember the story of Jacob and Laban, Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, but Laban fooled him, and Jacob had to work another seven years for Rachel. Now again, the Jewish marriage tradition is a wonderful illustration of what God has done for you and for me. The Father has chosen us to be the bride for His Son. We have been betrothed to Jesus. 
God has paid the dowry determined by those same three things. The father's wealth. Well, how rich is God? I mean, what could God give that would be an accurate measure to show his worth? Now, Psalm 50.10 tells us he owns cattle on a thousand hills. He could give all that to us, perhaps a planet or two. After all, he spoke you know, the world into existence. What would be a great worth for God to give? Something he already gave, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it costs the Lord greatly for us to be the bride of Christ. Secondly, the worth of the bride. How valuable are you and I in the eyes of the Lord? You know, the Arabs have a story. It's a part of their folklore. Story told of an Arabian man who had one daughter so plain he doubted anyone would ever want to marry her. One day, however, he received word that a man from a distant village was so taken with her that he was coming to see him with bride price in hand. Prepared to take whatever he offered, imagine the father's surprise when the visitor offered him six cows for his daughter's hand. I mean, six cows. Well, the father thought in amazement, the highest price we've ever had in this village was three cows. So that the father gave his daughter's hand in marriage. Two years later, the daughter and her husband returned to her home village. Everyone is startled by her exquisite beauty. How is it that she is so beautiful, they wonder? The answer was simple. Because her husband saw her as worth six cows, a six-cow beauty is what she became. Now, I don't recommend you guys tell your wife she's a six-cow beauty. (laughs) Unless you want to be sleeping out with the cows. But God looks at us as if to say, I am so in love with you, so passionately that I'll give everything to bring you into my kingdom in order that you might live with me forever and ever throughout eternity. To this then, God gave not six cows or even six galaxies. He gave himself. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I just want to add a side note to the fathers of daughters here in the church. Let your daughters know that they are loved. Let them know that they are beautiful. Compliment them. When my daughters were young, I would tell them they were just beautiful. But then I would tell them, is it better to be pretty on the inside or the outside? Of course, they would say the outside, but no, they would say say the inside, and they learned that. But listen, men, those of you that are dads with girls, when we compliment our girls, it accomplishes two things. Number one, it helps the girls in their insecurities over their looks in this look-oriented society in which we live in. But number two, if they hear that from you enough, chances are much better that they are going to wait for that guy who treats them the same way. So she was a a six-cow woman. So the father's wealth, the bride's worth. Now what about the groom's work? Well, Peter talks about that. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. All this to say, the dowry was paid, the price was determined, and has been fully accomplished by the Lord in the finished work of the cross. God gave everything for us. We are worth more than six cows. He gave his only begotten son. He gave his very best for me. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall we not with him also freely give us 
all. How shall he, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now this leads to the third and final stage of the Jewish wedding, the engagement stage, the betrothal stage, and the wedding. Now, at the betrothal stage, in the Jewish tradition of marriage, they are considered married, but they don't live together, and the marriage isn't consummated for, for a year. But this agreement is so binding that if they wanted to call it off, they would have to go through the divorce proceedings. They would have to get a certificate of divorce. Now, at this point, something interesting happened. As they meet together in this room, the price has been worked out. The money is placed on the table along with a contract that is to be signed stating that this is a serious matter. After the, bro- the bride and the groom, they, then, they, they take a cup of wine and they each take a sip from this cup signifying this cup of this covenant between the two of them that they are making. Listen, this parallels our situation so perfectly on the night before Jesus was betrayed. Jesus met in the upper room with his bride-to-be. They're around the table. And there was a bread which represented his body, which is going to be given to pay the price for the bride. Then Jesus took the cup, and he calls it the cup of the new covenant, the contract agreement. Luke 22:20 20 says, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He drank it. So did the apostles. And then Jesus went on to say, I will not eat this meal with you again until I eat it with you in my Father's kingdom. So it's this betrothal between Jesus and his church. Now what happens next in the Jewish wedding is most intriguing. After the contract is signed, after the cup is drank, the bride would then begin working uh, on her wedding dress. And in some cases, the bridegroom would actually give the supplies, the material to help her for the dress, which again is a picture of being clothed in Christ's righteousness. So then what's the bride doing? Well, well so that's what the bride is doing. What about the groom? Well, the groom... During this betrothal stage, uh, he would, as a young man, return to his father's house where he would begin construction on what was called in Hebrew a little mansion, a room built on his father's house. Which, if you remember what Jesus told his disciples after they had eaten the Last Supper, after the bread, after the cup, Jesus said in John 14, 2 and 3, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. I love that. So in the Jewish wedding, the groom would start working, but it was the father who determined when the house was finished. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four thirty-six, But in the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But the bride-to-be would get reports. She was aware of the time. She was aware of the seasons. In the same way, we don't know the day or the hour that the Lord is going to return, but we are definitely aware of the times and the seasons. And as we, as we have been studying, we know that there is nothing to prevent the next step in Bible prophecy from being fulfilled, which is the rapture of the church. And it could take place at any moment, even right now. I've said that enough over and over again. Why? Because this is what's important. To be ready. You see, in the traditional Jewish wedding, the bride would get the reports on how the groom's work was was going, and she would know that the day was getting closer and closer. When she would finally hear, the house is done, the bridegroom is coming any day now. So she had to be ready. Lamps had to be trimmed and burning, ready to go, because the groom could show up at any moment. Now, here's what happened at the third stage of the wedding day. The trumpets would sound, and there would be a shout 
that the bridegroom is coming, people wake up, the wedding is today. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. The actual ceremony took place outside under the stars. Contract would be read, blessing pronounced upon the couple, and off the couple would go to the father's house, to the little mansion, and there the marriage would be consummated. Now outside the door of this little mansion was the best man, the friend of the bridegroom. That's what John the Baptist called himself, not the Messiah. John the Baptist said he was a friend of the bridegroom, called to prepare the way for the bridegroom. Listen to what John said of himself in John 3, 28-30. I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, the best man would stand outside the door, and once the marriage was consummated, the bridegroom would yell out, okay, or not okay. Okay meant, yes, she was a virgin. It was proved by the blood on the bed sheet, the spot there, but not okay meant that she was not a virgin, and consequently a divorce would occur, and she'd be stoned to death, and everyone just went home. You want to hear okay. I mean, that's, you definitely want to hear okay. I mean, they're all, they're all gathered outside. They're waiting to hear what the word's going to be. Now, you may be thinking, well, here's where the picture breaks down for me. I'm not a chaste virgin. I have blown it so many times. In fact, I continue to have problems with sin. Here's the good news. It's not our blood that deems us as being okay. But it's his blood. His blood that was shed at Calvary. He's the one who is pure. He's the one who's never sinned. And when his blood is applied to my life, I am washed clean. You're washed clean just as if we've never sinned. It's glorious. Glory, as a man says. His blood cleanses me so that I appear as a bride again, according to Ephesians 5, as being, being without spot, without blemish. He supplies the wedding garment. He robes me, robes me in his righteousness. So when the best man gives the okay, everyone would break out in celebration and the seven-day celebration would begin. For those seven days, the bride and groom were treated like king and queens. This was the best. For those seven days, the bride was not seen, but every now and then the bridegroom would come out of the little mansion and mingle with the guests. He would get some food and some goodies and bring him back in for his bride and literally serve her for seven days. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke twelve thirty-seven? Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. This perfectly fits the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, here's where it really gets great, and it relates to our text this morning. At the end of the seven days, the bridegroom would come out of the little mansion, and he presents his bride to the guests, and then they sit down for this great feast. So that's when the wedding feast takes place. After the rest of the town would then see the bridegroom with his bride. Fits perfectly with our text. Here in our text, we're at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The wedding feast is celebrated. What comes next? The second coming of Jesus Christ. He returned to the world with his bride, with the church. Verse 14 tells us about that. And 
We'll look at this next week. I know you want to look at it now because it's exciting. Just keep saying glory, glory, glory. But let me give you a heads up. Jesus wins, okay? Listen, as we close and we enter into time of communion this morning, look at verse 10. John tells us, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When John saw the scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb, he's so overwhelmed by it all. He just falls down at the feet of the servant who's revealed it to him, and he just starts worshiping him. And, and he says, whoa, 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 stop it, buddy. Slow down. Don't worship me. Worship God. Worship him alone. You know, mankind has this tendency to place worship where it does not belong. I shared this before, but it's worth repeating. I'm told that over in Rome at St. Peter's Basilica, you'll find a statue of St. Peter in which his toe has been totally kissed off. The statue of St. Peter has had his toe kissed so many times that it's literally worn off. And you think, well, wait a minute. That's not even Peter. I mean, it's just a statue. It's a chunk of cement. And people are walking by it and kissing this thing. And you can hear God saying, what in the world are you doing? And, and you know, if Peter could see this, say, stop. Worship God. Besides, it could be dangerous. You can get tomain poison from kissing that. The point is clear, though. We are all human beings, and there's only one that we are to worship, and that is God. Worship God alone. John just got caught up in the moment. It's this servant says, it says, worship God, and then in verse 10 it says, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? Simply means that all prophecy is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. That's what prophecy is all about. That's what history is all about. History is his story. In other words, everything points to Jesus. Worship him. Our focus, our worship should be to the Lord. And there will come a time when we are all just sit around the banqueting table of the Lord and we will experience a feast like no other. The marriage supper of the Lamb. So how can we get ready for that? By worshiping the Lord through communion. It's interesting, we call it the Lord's Supper. And we look back at Christ's sufferings. We know that communion is a memorial meal that we do. As Jesus instructed, do this in remembrance of me. And we understand that the broken bread and juice represents the body and blood of Jesus who died on the cross for us. So we look back at remembrance of the Lord in the Lord's Supper. Yet we must also look ahead because we're told in 1 Corinthians 11:26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. In other words, we need to look forward, look for that time when he comes to bring his bride back. So every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should be remembering Jesus is coming again. The simple meal of the Lord's Supper is just a reminder of this great eternal meal that we're going to enjoy in his presence one day, I believe, very soon. It's like a, a practice run for heaven is what we have here. So how do we get ready? By preparing our hearts. Listen, if you don't know the Lord this morning, you need the proper clothes to participate. 
You need to be born again. You're invited to the feast, but you need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the way that you do that is by repenting of your sin and committing your life to Jesus Christ. Just saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry that I've, I've lived for myself. I'm sorry that I've been, been, been living to please me. Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to follow you. Would you forgive me of my sin? You do that. You pray that prayer. God will come in. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll robe you in Christ's righteousness. And he reserves a place for you at the table. Man, it's a win-win situation. And he gives you his Holy Spirit to lead and guide you until he takes us home to be with him. So if you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, I pray you would not leave this place without making that commitment to him. For all of us that, that have that relationship with him. Listen, the bridegroom is coming. Mansions are ready. And, if, and, 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 and we need to be ready. The invitation's gone out. Let's worship him now as we, we worship him on that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again. Lord, I pray that they would make that commitment to you before we pass out these elements, before we participate in this supper and communion. That they would make this commitment to you, Lord, and that they would then receive the communion, the bread and the, and the juice as a reminder of what you've done for them. Lord, anybody here that doesn't have a relationship with you, Open up their eyes to see their need for you and to come to you. Lord, maybe there are some here that, that maybe at one time in their lives walked with you, but now they, they've been backslidden, they've walked away, Lord, and maybe the, the, their garments have gotten dirty. <laughs> Lord, they, they come in and, and they want to be cleansed. Lord, your word tells us if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we confess to you this morning. We have sinned. We have blown it. But Lord, you forgive us. You cleanse us. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to know you, but they want to know you, that they would make their decision for you right now. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anybody here you want to you be born again? You want to give your life to Jesus Christ before you participate in communion? Would you just raise your hand? Just acknowledge your commitment to the Lord this morning so I can pray for you. Maybe give you a Bible and help you after service is over. Anybody at all? Again, Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we just want to worship you for who you are. Bless this time, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.